Welcome to the Daily Bible Podcast, a show intended to help you get more out of your everyday time in the Word. This is a ministry of Compass Bible Church in North Texas, and if you'd like to join along with our daily Bible reading program, you can do so by going to compassntx.org and clicking on the Daily Bible Reading tab. Thanks for joining in for today's episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Hey, it's uh, Sunday, so hopefully you're at church and uh, listening as Pastor PJ is preaching. Hopefully it's a great Sunday. Or I, you're a your pastor, wherever you're listening from. Yeah. Which, yeah. Could be Pastor PJ. We hope it is. Yeah. Yeah. As this is mostly geared at our church, aimed at our church, but we recognize that there are other people that listen that aren't part of our church. So I was encouraged the other day. I was looking at our Instagrams and noticed that there was a guy, I don't know who he is. He said he just finished listening to the 100th episode. That was cool. Wait a minute. We have an Instagram? Well, our church does. Oh, okay, gotcha. Our church Instagram. So he let us, and because everyone knows, that's one of the same thing. We're same people. So that was cool. He sent yep. us a message to let us know, and he he was he was 100 days into it. That's great. That man. was really cool. That's awesome. That's good. Hey, uh, happy birthday, George Vartanian. Happy birthday, George. Yep. I have a picture of George and a garbage dump. What? Well, it's it's one of those long rectangular thing. Remember when we were un, un- oh, t- taking yeah. out all the chairs? When yeah, George, yeah, yeah, yeah. when you Vaughn told George and I to go in the trash can and, and press it down? I did. I said, get what you belong, where, <laughs> where you belong. Isn't <laughs> that right. what I said? That's precisely that. I don't I think mean, it was. Exact direct quote. So George and I were playing in the trash can, pushing trash down, and we, of course, took pictures there because what else do you do? Yeah, why not, right? <laughs> Went in Rome. And now we get to sit on those chairs that we unpacked that day. We do. Which and is they're exciting. very comfortable. They are. They're comfortable, yeah. Well, hey, we are in uh, Daniel, starting a brand new book. We are done with Ezekiel, and now we're on to Daniel. Done with it for this year. So hang on for next year, though. It's coming yeah. back. Yeah. But in Daniel, uh, the first six chapters are different than what we've been doing. Daniel is a prophet, one of the, the major prophets, but uh, the first six chapters aren't as much prophecy, although there's some interpretation of dreams that could be in, looked at as, as prophetic. Uh, but it's, it's primarily more historical narrative, which is a breath of fresh air um, because we've been dealing with a, a lot of prophecy. And so in, in these first six chapters, we kind of get the, the story of Daniel and his three friends told before uh, the, the rest of the book really dives back into the realm of prophecy and uh, eschatology, apocalyptic literature. So um, hold on for that. But for now, we get this, this breath of fresh air. Daniel, uh, taken captive, he was one of the exiles that was taken in the 605 deportation. Um, under the Babylonians, as uh, as the book opens up and, and tells us right away there in chapter one, it says that uh, that God gave Israel into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. So if we ever question the sovereignty of God over the events of uh, the exile and everything else, it's just a repeated theme. We've seen it in, in Isaiah, we've seen it in Jeremiah, we've seen it in, in Ezekiel, and now we see it again here that this is God. God is doing this. And Daniel opens up the same way. It says God gave them, and along with them came some of the the noble youths of Israel, the uh, the youths of uh, of outstanding, not just appearance, but uh, but intellect, and uh, the, the ones that were just at the, the top of the class. Cream of the crop. Yeah. And, uh, and, and why, why might he do that? Well, if you think about it, what's one of the best ways to win over a culture that you're trying to snuff out? It's to win over the best and the brightest of that culture. It's to take the ones that are, are the, the cream of the crop and to bring them over to your ways. And that's what chapter one's all about. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar wants that group, including Daniel and then his friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, who are given new names in, uh, in Babylon. But he wants to take them and he wants to put them into this uh, basically... Uh, it's it's Babylonian 101. 
And it's, mm-hmm. it's going to be a full cultural immersion program where uh, they're going to have education, culture, food, and identity thrust upon them that is very different from what they know. And so one of those things stands out to them, and that's the, the issue of food. And Daniel and, and uh, his friends, they say, they make this resolve, which is such a good word for us. Church, I mean, when, when you're thinking about your sanctification, uh, this is a sanctified resolve. To, to resolve something, think of New Year's resolutions, yeah. is to commit. It's with a firm decision, I'm going to do this. And Daniel resolved in his heart. So this is not just a verb, verbal commitment. This is an internal commitment. Knowing the the law, knowing what Yahweh had commanded regarding food and what would defile and what would not defile, to say we're not going to do this, and uh, and right away we get the the one of the key themes in the book of Daniel is boldness and courage, because he and his friends go to the king's uh, assistant and say, hey, let us eat just vegetables and give us water to drink, and then let us be tested. And this is a God thing one that happens because that the servant agrees, and they're found better in appearance than all of the other youths who ate all the king's food. There's no logical for them. Maybe you could argue, okay, maybe it was healthier, but for them to be described as fatter in appearance, which is what the text describes, that that's a suspension of natural law. Vegetables are not going to put put gush on the tush, so to speak. <laughs> gush on the tush. It's uh, vegetables are 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 there to uh, do the opposite, which is why a lot of diets go for vegetables, and so. Uh, God responds to their faithfulness by rewarding their obedience in in chapter one, at least. So what you're saying is that if I was going to do a diet, maybe the Daniel diet is not something I should aspire to. Yeah, there's a book out there that has to do with the Daniel diet, which is uh, an atrocity. It's it's nothing short of that. It's uh, an abuse of hermeneutics. It's a misunderstanding of scripture. And it's it, if you've got it on your bookshelf, throw it in your fireplace. I've actually never read it, but I I think the premise is exactly the opposite of what you're saying. You use Daniel's diet to cleanse and to create a healthier, more vital personage, I suppose, and and, and you'll be happier and all the rest. Which is why it's a perversion of hermeneutics, because that's not the point of Daniel at all. Because Daniel got fatter, the opposite of what you would expect with vegetables to do. Well, interesting in this chapter here, Daniel's interesting, and something I learned as I this time read, read this time around is that Daniel... He's probably a young man, teens, totally. early teens, yep. because he sees the entire exile. Like the guys, I mean, from the start to the finish, he probably was part of the whole thing. He was one of the first exiles to be taken. And then he and his friends go through the entire 70 years. So he lives, I don't know, 80, 85, 90 years. I don't know how long he lives, but he sees the whole thing, which tells me something about the way that God interacts with people. Daniel's clearly a godly dude, like um, godliest of the godliest, it seems like. I mean, he's, he's a model in a lot of ways, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But... Despite that, God has him flourish in exile. Mm-hmm. God has him flourish, maybe not in spite of the exilic occupation, but maybe because of it. Daniel is sharpened and trained and grown in a land of hostility, which, mm-hmm. man, that's encouraging for me. Yeah. Because even though we're in Texas, a land of receptibility, we're still largely in a culture that is antagonistic toward Christianity. And yet, Daniel flourishes. That's yeah. encouraging for us. We can flourish in our Babylon too. Yeah, for sure. And uh, and and parents. I mean, to, to Pastor Rod's point, Daniel opens and and I've taken youth groups through this book. I, I don't know, Pastor Rod, if you've preached through this with youth groups in the past, but this is a only chapter seven through twelve. Only seven through twelve. Wow, I've done the opposite. I've done one through six. <laughs> but this is why this is such a helpful book for your teens, your preteens, to go through with them because that's where Daniel and his three friends were. They were in that life stage when they're taken from Babylon and are taken from Israel and everything they know. Uh, including how they worship God, right? And, and, and they're thrust into the situation 
where they kind of have to figure out and go back to ground zero and go, okay, what does worship of God look like now that we don't have the temple, that now that we're not in, in Jerusalem anymore? What does God want of us? And they return to the basic foundational principle of faithfulness and obedience, which is is so refreshing. So parents, uh, have your kids listen to this podcast. Have your, your teens, your preteens listen to this podcast. We would encourage you most of the time, maybe not during the Song of Solomon era, but aside from that, but Zest. especially... Especially this book, especially Daniel, it has so much to say. Uh, when you look at your kids and you send them off to school, and and uh, they're thinking, "Man, it's it's so hard to to live out godliness in my school because of X, Y, and Z." Uh, let's go to the book of Daniel and let's look at the the example that we have in these these four youths, which is uh, is quite quite amazing when we get down to it. Amen. God is. <laughs> Excuse me, coughing. God is coughing. COVID. Uh, I don't have the cough button like uh, like that one place. Just pretend you have it. God is. Um, he's he's pleased by their obedience. To say nothing else, and that's that's a theme that comes throughout the whole book. But he gives them. Notice that God is sovereign. He gives Israel to to Nebuchadnezzar, but then he gives Daniel favor and he gives Daniel knowledge and understanding in these three, such that uh, there's none found like them in the kingdom. Ten times better. Notice ten times better. Not just from the other youths that were there, but then, then all of the, the magicians and the wise men in Babylon. Wise men, by the way, um, magicians th- at this time, think uh, astrologers, professors, um, yeah, magicians, sorcerers, all of that would have been included in, in this category of wise men. Yeah, one class. Right. It's, it's kind of the intellectual, the, the elite of the day. Yeah. Well, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in chapter two, and uh, the dream troubles him, it says in the text, and he doesn't want the same um, smoke blown so to speak, uh, as he normally gets. And so he, he, uh, he calls for his, uh, his wise men and he tells them, um, Hey, uh, you guys tell me my dream and the interpretation. And they rightly conclude nobody can do that. The thing that you're asking us to do is impossible. And he says, well, it stands firm. If you can't do this, I'm going to kill all of you because he's, he's troubled by the dream. But I think he also knows that, that they've just been pulling the wool over his eyes and he's just been going along with it because usually the dreams have been favorable to him. The interpretations have been favorable to him. Well, this one shakes him enough that he wants to know. So he calls and, uh, for their execution, Daniel in an, another act of bold faith and courage goes to, uh, the, the head of the guard and says, Hey, don't, don't, uh, don't put everybody to death yet. Go ahead and put the sword back. Let us uh, seek our, our God out on this and we'll get the information. Sure enough, again, God resor- rewards their faithfulness and answers their prayer and reveals the dream. They glorify God for the revelation of the dream. They go back into Nebuchadnezzar. They lay out the dream, which is this ugly, hideous, gigantic statue, which is 90 feet by nine foot, as we're going to see is in chapter three, when he actually erects this thing. And Daniel walks through with him that, that this statue represents five kingdoms. You've got the head, which is Babylon. You've got the chest and arms would be the next kingdom to come. That's Media, Media and Persia. We're going to talk about them in a few days. You've got the middle and the thighs, which is Greece. And then you've got the legs and feet, which is Rome. And then you, the feet with the toes, there's, there's some more there that we'll get into down the road here. But then this fifth kingdom, which is this stone cut from the mountain as though without hands, and it is the everlasting kingdom. And so Daniel lays this out. And basically, he's laying out future history for Nebuchadnezzar as he walks him through this prophetic dream that the king has. Future history. I like that term. Well, interestingly enough, though, it's that keep in mind as you prepare to read tomorrow, that gold is what's going to probably provoke Neb, Nebuchadnezzar, to erect a statue in his honor made of, you guessed it, gold. Yep. But the whole idea here, one of the themes in Daniel is God's sovereignty over the nations, over human powers. Um, and it's probably more than what you might think, because as you get into the latter chapters of Daniel, you start to realize that God's care of creation, his stewardship of human governments is 
pretty precise. We're not just talking about God saying, I'm going to put you know, President Obama over here and President Trump over there, um, and we'll just see how they do. No, God's ordination of all things is scary. <laughs> it's scary in its, in its perfection, scary in its specificity. That's a better word. And so well, as you're reading this and you're seeing Daniel rise to the surface, he's interpreting dreams, you may be thinking about Joseph, God is ordaining the flow of time. He, he uses that, um, well, he uses his servants, Joseph and Daniel, to interpret dreams, but not so much as a magic trick, as, as much it is, as it is to reveal God's hand upon the nation. So you're going to see some pretty scary and cool stuff here. Hang on tight. There's a lot more to uncover. There is. At the end of the chapter, Daniel is given a promotion, which is another common theme in the book of Daniel. He's given a promotion. His friends are given promotions. My, my favorite one is in chapter five when, <laughs> when Daniel tells him, look, keep your promotion. I don't need it. Um, in light of what's happening in that chapter. And we'll get there, but tune in for that. But anyways, this is a meaningless promotion from a worldly perspective when really what Daniel's after is not the acclaim of men, but the acclaim of his God. And that's something that uh, will show up time and again in the book. First John chapter two. First John chapter two. Uh, he addresses us as little children. Aww. Yeah. Que bonito. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. It's I like know. when your aunt and uncle, like, oh, mijo, you know? Yes, yeah. John. John's equivalent of mijo. Mi, mijo. Mijo means what? Uh, my son. Or mija, like my daughter. Okay. It's actually, there's two words there. It sounds like one word, but it's mi hija. Uh, mi hijo. Gotcha. But there you go. Okay. That's John's way of saying mijo. And now I know. It's it's a term of endearment. In case, half the if, if Hispanics call you that, that means they, they really think fondly of you, and they think, you, they think of you as their child. Okay. So just know. All right. If my family ever visits, that's what's happening. They're going to call me Miho. They might. If they like me. If they like you. If they don't like you, they'll call you other words. Fine. I quit. <laughs> uh, hey, chapter two. How about this one? Verse two. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Everyone is getting saved, bro. There Everyone. Universalists. That's we right. are now the universal Compass Bible Church of Christ. Wow. We're not. We're not. We're not that. We're not, not that. No. Uh, what does that mean? Well, what does the word propitiation mean? Propitiation is to satisfy God's wrath. It's to remove our guilt. It's to uh, cleanse us. It's to atone for our sins. It's it's all of that. It's it's this idea of of the wrath of God being taken away. It's it's symbolizing the Old Testament with the Day of Atonement with the two goats. One goat was slaughtered for the payment of sin. The other goat was the scapegoat where the sins were carried off away from Israel into the wilderness. All of that realized in this term to propitiate, and Jesus is that for us, but not only for us, but for the sins of the whole world. What is John saying here? But that God's provision of Christ was sufficient for the forgiveness of the sins of all of mankind. Was it efficient for the sins of all of mankind? In other words, are, are the sins of all of mankind uh, propitiated by the death of Christ? Uh, there we would draw the line and say, no, otherwise there is uh, you're laying the groundwork for universalism there. Otherwise, we would have to say everyone is forgiven, everyone is, is saved. So what John is writing here is, is the death of Christ is sufficient for to be the propitiation for the sins of all mankind. Amen to that. And part of that propitiation for all the Christians who participate in that is to walk rightly. As remember, there's three tests. You've got the, the test of obedience, the test of love, the test of belief. So here, we're going to look at the test of obedience. He's going to say in verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Which is to say, if you follow Christ, you should be following Christ. That's not too complicated, is it? There should be some evidence about your life and your love for Christ, and that's going to show itself in your obedience. Jesus says something very similar in his own gospel. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, he says. John reiterates that right here. Yep. Yeah, and and that's... 
yeah, super helpful as far as thinking, okay, what is it? What's our response to that? Our response is that devotion and, uh, and following him. And now he's going to get into this, this different section here that is a little bit confusing when he starts to talk about little children, fathers, and young men. Um, what's he talking about here? And he repeats this kind of triad through twice here. He, he says little children, fathers, young men, little children, or then children, fathers, and, and young men. Um, what he's doing here is he's representing, I think at least, PR, get your thoughts on this too, but I think these are the different stages of spiritual maturity. I think he's writing to new believers, saying to new believers, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. The basics of the gospel there for somebody that's freshly saved, this is something that they can rejoice in, that they can hold on to. If you look across at verse 13, he says, I write to you children because you know the father. Again, you've, you've been introduced to this relationship with the father now because of the basics of the gospel. And then he gets to, let's jump to the young men, even though fathers is next in the list, but young men, and he's saying, you've overcome the evil one. Okay, now there's a, a greater understanding here wherein we're, we're not just focused on the fact that our sins are forgiven, but now there's a this the focus on, I think, our sanctification here, that we've overcome the world. We've overcome the, the prince of the power of the world. Now we can grow in holiness. We've overcome the evil one. He Jump over to verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you. You've overcome the evil one. Again, the word of God abiding in us, transforming us. And then finally, the fathers. Those are that are aged in the faith or, or seniors in the faith. And I'm writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. There's this uh, idea of, of length of relationship and, and depth of knowledge there. Uh, and he repeats that in verse 14. You know him who is from the beginning. So I think these triads are dealing with spiritual maturity here. I would tend to agree with you in that, except to say that I think perhaps there's there's a, a literal expectation that for those who are in these rough and dirty stages, this is the, the expectation of normal Christian development, which is to say, if you're older and, and you've been in the faith for a long time, there there is an expectation that you are, in fact, mature in the faith. And that should that's an encouraging thing on the one hand, because that means <laughs> the longer we're in the faith, the more that we should show ourselves to be mature. We don't want to be on the other side of the indictment in Hebrews, like by this time you ought to be teachers, but you still need milk. You still need someone to mash your potatoes and cut up your meat. No, there ought to be a regular progression. So I would agree, but I think maybe he's talking to these actual age groups, uh, not excluding moms and, and daughters, of course, that they're included in this this broadcast. But just to say that with age, there ought to be progression in the faith. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Verses 15 through 17, just for sake of time, I don't know that we need to dive into that super in depth here. I think you know those verses. You've heard them before about how Christians, we should not love the world. Worth paying attention to as you read through this on your daily Bible reading, though, just to remind yourself of what is the world, what is the makeup of the world, and so forth and so on. So key in on verses 15 through 17, but I do want to hit the Antichrist because that's an important topic. We talk about the Antichrist in the end times, the last times. That's not what John is, is envisioning here in this text. In this text, he's talking about the Antichrists, and these are a lowercase a, and there's multiple and here he's talking about those that are revealing themselves to not be part of the church anymore. He says even they've gone out from us because they they were not of us. And so these are people that even perhaps were in the church and have left the church. One thing about the the letter to First John that we haven't really touched on very much is he was writing to, to combat a particular strain of a heresy, a heretical teaching at the time, which had to do with what uh, really was the early stages of a, of a heresy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism denied the the physical uh the, it, 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 let me rephrase it the other way gnosticism elevated the spiritual over the physical and so in gnosticism you even had a denial that christ took on flesh and uh, but just simply that he appeared in the flesh or that he was uh, he, he looked as though he was in the flesh but because the flesh is evil and wicked in gnosticism jesus couldn't have taken on the flesh so here in the antichrists he's talking about here in chapter two 
are these false teachers that were in the church and are making themselves evident that they're not of the church um, because they are teaching things contrary to sound doctrine. For example, verse 22, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Um, Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So, uh, even though we don't have a specific uh, addressee in this this letter, this epistle from John, he was writing about a specific situation facing the church there. These antichrists are these false teachers, and we still see those today. So there are still antichrists present today that uh, we need to be aware of, lowercase a, not capital A. One of the things I want to encourage you is to see the fact that the church never experienced a golden age of perfection. There was never a time when the church had no false teachers or false teaching, had no lack of clarity, no bumps or bruises along the way. This is the church. You should be grateful for 2023 version of the church because so many of the benefits that we now enjoy, like having the Bible in our language and on software and having it so ubiquitous, that's a blessing that came from the early stages of the church. Men and women who lived and died for their faith, including shedding their blood in order that the Bible could be translated in our language and so many of the things that we take for granted now. The doctrines that we understand with such great clarity came at the cost of blood and fights and arguments. Um, some of those not literal fights, but some of them probably are literal fights, actually. I think about Athanasius. There's, there's actual, uh, man, there's so many good things for us today. Don't look back at yesteryear and long for the way things used to be. That's a right. common that's a common error for a lot of us. We look back at, oh man, back in those days when the church was so pure and she just got along perfectly. There was never a time. Right. From the very earliest stages, even the Apostle John writing here saying, be on guard. There's false teachers. There's deceivers. You need to be aware of them. Take note. Live different. Right. Right. One more note before we wrap up here. Notice what he says there in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. What he means by that is there is nothing left between now and the return of Christ for the church. So uh, that is still true for us today. It is the last hour. And he's going to talk more as we get further on in the epistle about what it should look like for us to to this test of obedience that we've been talking to walk in such a way that we're ready for his appearing. So uh, look forward to that. Hopefully, as we hit you again tomorrow with another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. See you tomorrow. Peace. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. We hope and pray this has been a blessing to you and your time in the Word. If it has, if you would subscribe to this podcast, leave a like, leave a comment, and share it with some friends and family, that would be awesome. If you need more information about Compass Bible Church here in North Texas, you can go to compassntx.org. Again, that's compassntx.org. And we'll be back with you tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Thank you.